The hero factor is that special core fundamental that stands some companies apart to achieve true greatness. There's no better time than now to discover and revive your business story. Your origin story begins now. Hey, we got a great interview today. Talking to Tristan Lewis, an internet veteran who has co-founded six companies, two of which that went public, three of which were acquired. And for a decade, he served as the chief innovation officer for HSBC and head of mobile and internet technology for Deutsche Bank. I mean, this guy's done a lot. Well, there seems to be software for just about everything in business, but government agencies can get left behind. Today's guest is trying to change that, Tristan Lewis, and he is working with a company called Casebook. He's now the president and CEO of that company, and Casebook focuses on trying to make different government agencies work together more effectively and efficiently. Man, I'm telling you, you're going to hear in this episode, it's a tough job. He's a serial entrepreneur, but I think he's going to be able to make it because he's tenacious and he's trying to make the world a better place. Let's listen in and welcome Tristan Lewis. Hey, when you think of government, words like person-centric and purpose don't even come to mind. So how does Casebook change that? Well, first, when you think of government, right, you think of this massive organization. And in most cases, people don't realize that one third of what our government does is actually provide services or connect people to services. We're talking about a child that's been uh, battered or that's sitting in a family where they can't put a house or food uh, over their uh, over their child's uh, uh, kids and food in their mouths. We're talking about people that are homeless, that need access to different types of services, or we're talking to people that are just fallen on hard times and need access to food stamps or medical services or those kind of things. And those people are all getting some kind of services or getting connected to some kind of services by the government. But the interesting thing is that our government is still operating of very antiquated technology, oftentimes pen and paper, uh, not even computers. And when they're looking at it, they're looking at it through the lens of a case. They're looking at the person that walks in, the files that have been created around that person. And when that person has um, walked out, all that they hang on to is those paper files. If that person comes back in, there's no record of or history of how that person has interacted with the government. And they try treating that person in the same way that they have in the past. As you know, the, uh, the old axiom goes that trying to do the same thing over again, expecting different results. That is the definition of insanity. So what made you what made you decide to get into this? I mean, you came from the financial industry. So Yeah, so it's it's kind of a funny thing. I mean, I've built a number of startups over the years. Um, I built a lot of technology like you over the years. I've been a, a CEO, a CMO, a CTO. And by 2016, I was genuinely worried about the impact that technology was having on the world. Uh, it was a bit of an existential crisis as I uh, came to the realization that a lot of what we built was not having the desired positive in, uh, effect of changing the world for the better. And as I was going through this existential crisis, I was approached by one of the largest foundations in America, the Annie Casey Foundation, which is focused on the child welfare space. And they said, we built those technology assets here because we're trying to get a census of how many children are in the child welfare system, but we don't really know what to do with it. And in looking at it, I was exposed to that space of 
human services, which is a social welfare part of the government, and, and came to realize that they're dealing with antiquated technology, that uh, in an age where you can download pretty much any song that you want to at uh, the click of a button or list every single shareholders in a large corporation at uh, the click of a button, you can't get something as basic as a census of how many children are available, are currently in the child welfare system in America or how many people are getting access to food stamps today. Most of those counts are you know, 18, 24 months old. And yet we've got the technology to solve this problem. You think that that's a money problem, but it isn't because $28 billion a year is being spent on technology with government for social services. And about $1 trillion a year is spent on providing those services. And so it seems to me that it's a pretty important thing to try to figure out how to get this done right and to go back to basics in terms of getting it there. Well, but not even that. And I mean, I think that's that's huge. First of all, let me just say, I think that's huge. But then I even think about, okay, we're trying to provide services to people many of the times who don't have the money to even get to the place that they have to get the services from. So I'm thinking somebody like in food stamps, imagine if we could help that person, they don't have to come down to the office to get the food stamps, right? They don't have to come down to the, you know, to the facility where it's, a, it's tough for them. They don't have childcare. They don't have, they don't, they might not even have a car. And yet we're making them go through this old and an, antiquated, archaic kind of way of doing it. Cause that's the way we've been doing it for hundreds of years. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the crazy thing is that ultimately the, the net result of that is that we're creating generational issues, right? Uh, it is a given that there is trauma that is created when you're growing up in a family that is poor. And so if you're not helping the, the parents, right, you're then going to end up with kids that in 20, 25 years are going to be back in the system. You know, you take uh, a, an astounding stat in uh, a kid that has been taken out of their house uh, as a result of a, either a child abuse incident or um, what is called a, a non-child abuse. Yeah, a lack of, a lack of non-basic services or care. Lack right? of yeah. non-basic services, yeah. Uh, you take that child out of their house, it is unlikely that they will get reunited with their parents in less than three months. And it increases the chances that that child will not graduate college. In fact, only 4% of children in the foster care system end up graduating in a four-year college. Mm. Mm. Wow. And that's out of that like one little incident. Right. And I mean, and those kids are no different than any other kid. They just had a different, no. a different deck of cards, which is just amazing. Let me ask, I think, a fair question. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made here, without question. I mean, you said into the trillions of services that could be caught in the delivery of the service, right? So are you doing this for money or are you doing it for some other well, reason? Well, so I'm doing it for some other reason. My view is, you know, as I mentioned, in 2016, I started getting worried about the negative impact that, the techno that technology was having on the world. So looking at this, I was like, this is an area where we can actually use technology to have a positive impact. And the, the way I'm looking at it is that, as I mentioned, yes, there's massive amounts of money that are being spent, but the problem is that no one knows if we're spending them in the right way. With mm -hmm. a trillion dollars of our economy that is being spent right, every year on delivering those type of services, the fact that we don't know is a bit of an issue because it means yeah. that there's probably a fair amount of waste in there. And there's always a challenge in terms of how much we can get to the people. 
only about 40 cents on the dollar actually makes it into the hands of people. So the other 60 cents on that dollar, those $600 billion are in the delivery of the service. So if you've got an efficiency there, let's say that we manage to only have a 10% impact on that market. That's $60 billion that we can move from you know, waste to actually being used in a different way. I'm going to let the politicians figure out you know, how they're going to uh, split that money. It's either going to go through tax cuts if you're on the conservative side or through delivery of more service if you're on the democratic side. But ultimately, it's going to make us a better society. Because if you split it in the middle, right, you're going to end up with more people getting service at a lower cost for all of us. Well, and a better and hopefully better service. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had somebody who had to go down to the DMV. You're familiar with the DMV, right? Yeah. All right. So and she, it took her like four hours. She but she finally put it off, put it off. She finally had to get it done that day. And I and she's one of my top performers. And I'm thinking, man, what should I hire somebody to go down to the DMV for her? but they couldn't because of the way they have to do it. But just imagine the efficiencies you gain, first of all, in customer service, right? Because ultimately taxpayers are customers, but more importantly, the efficiencies mm-hmm. in making someone more effective for the workforce by not having to do that. Yeah, and there's a, there's a bit of a perverse component to this. So, so let's say that, for example, uh, you're on food stamps. If you're on food stamps, you will only stay on food stamps if you can report on the number of hours that you've worked. And you have to use certain minimums of number of hours worked if you're able to right. If you spend four hours at that office to go and report on that, that's hours that you can't go work. Right. Because you're spending that time at the office and you're not at work, those are hours that you can no longer report. And if you don't report those hours, you're not necessarily meeting your minimum requirements to get your food stamps and you lose your food stamps altogether. Yeah, but don't even to that. Let's imagine it takes you four hours to go do that and you get to the front of the line and then you've got the wrong form. You got to go back yeah. again. So uh, exactly. which, which happens a great, a great deal of the time. So I, I think it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Right, we need to take a quick break. So if you don't mind, we'll be right back. C-Suite Radio. But we also know, um, Tristan, that, that government's not known for being efficient. I mean, they're known for being big and bulky and not easy to work with. So what obstacles are you running into? So, well, there's a series of obstacles. I mean, as you mentioned, government is not necessarily the most efficient uh, system. It's the best system we've got, right? One of the biggest challenges I think that a lot of uh, government has is that the people that are there want to do the right thing but they are hobbled by processes that are ancient. Yep. Um, by, by the way, I say this too. I say that, you know, a lot of people look at government workers sometimes. I don't think anyone wakes up and says, I can't wait to be stupid today, right? Yeah. yeah. And most of the government workers that you uh, end up talking to actually want to do the right thing. They don't get paid very well and they're going in day in and day out because they really believe that they can make our society better by doing their job. But they are limited sometimes and constrained sometimes by things like procurement rules. I know procurement is one of the most boring things you can talk about. And it's really, it's about, you know, how you go about buying stuff. But if you're buying a software solution in government and that software solutions is sitting in the six to seven figures, the first thing that you've got to do is that you've got to get a budget in order to do that. And that generally needs to go through the legislature in order to get uh, to your budget. So now you've spent a year just getting to your budget. And then after you've gotten your budget, you've got to write a competitive set of requirements 
because we don't want to necessarily procure stuff from a single customer because that could be seen from a single provider because that could be seen as doing favors to that provider. And so now you go and you spend another year writing your requirements. So now you haven't even started getting your system, right? So now you have your, your competitive system, now competitive procurement, and you're going to spend six months where different vendors are going to come in and they're going to uh, respond to your long list of requirements. And after those six months, you're going to award that contract to someone. So now we're two and a half years in. And then you've got about three to six months of contract negotiations because that's a large contract. So you're three years in before you start the work. <laughs> and, and, and those systems generally will take like a year to two years to implement. So by this time you get the solution that you wanted, you're five years in. Yeah. Technology moves at such a fast rate that the minute you receive that system, it's already ancient. Yeah. That's amazing to even think about. Explain for our listeners, give me a level of the level of technology that you're looking at when you go in. I mean, when I first went to Kodak, I mean, they had uh, such a legacy system, and I can't even remember the name of it. It was an email system that nobody used anymore. When we find we were trying to, uh, you know, please, please, dear God, get us to Outlook or something, get us to get us to Microsoft. And it was the old le legacy system. I can't even remember the name of it anymore. It was so bad. And even though that newest system was on like eight, we were on two. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh. So what? How, what's the level that you're dealing with there in terms of the government? And then I want to talk about how big the sector, how big is it growing? Yeah, it ranges from a government standpoint. So I'll, uh, I'll start with a little anecdote, which is that uh, there was a, a big procurement done by the Veterans Administration a couple of years ago. But what led to actually doing that technology upgrade was that a building burned down. And you're thinking, well, why would a building burning down actually have an impact on the technology procurement? Well, the reason it had an impact on the technology procurement is that that building was where the files for uh, veterans that were in, involved in the Vietnam War and whose last name was, I think it was between K and M, were in that building. And they were paper files. And so uh, when that building burned down, so did the paper files that veterans yeah, it wasn't even an Excel spreadsheet. It was wasn't like, an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. Yeah, an Excel spreadsheet is actually one layer up, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's the, the kind of technology that you often end up with. There was another place that I talked to recently where it's a big system and they're trying to figure out eligibility for benefits, right? So figuring out how much money the government is going to pay to give someone services, whether it's access to a doctor or, you know, access to a bed or something like that. The people there, kid you not, were doing the calculations with notebooks that had the government formulas in it for calculation of benefits, calculators, and not, you know, fancy uh, graphing calculators, but the calculator, full dollar calculator that you're going to get at CVS and printed paper. There was a room of literally tens of people that were doing calculations with paper and pen to determine whether people should get their benefits. The net net of that is that it would take several months for an individual, once they had applied, to know whether they could get benefits or not. Of course, you know, along, along the way, people either die off or they move die. or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. And when you look at this, it's the kind of stuff that could be replaced by software and five people. Or, or, or tablet. 
you know, a tablet yeah. or, or a phone. I mean, I, there's more technology at my local restaurant than there is there. Exactly. Right? And that's that, that's the crazy thing is that the solutions that are that can be used are all there from a technology standpoint. I'm not launching a ship to Mars, right? I mean, I am literally trying to bring some of the technology that exists in today's corporations into the government and help modernize government. Yeah. Well, so when you walk in with Casebook, your company, and you show this, what's the first reaction? Is it is it euphoria that, oh my God, thank you for showing up? Or is it, there's no freaking way we're going to get that implemented? Because we sell our solutions as a cloud solution, the first thing is like, well, uh, is the cloud secure? Yeah. So we have to go over that, right? And uh, of course, we've done like all kinds of uh, security audits and all that stuff. So getting over that first fear of the dangers of the cloud is there. The second part is, well, that's got to be expensive. It's like when we start explaining that, no, it doesn't have to be that expensive and that they can start doing stuff oh. relatively. Yeah, you could, you could, although it'd be good for you to say, well, we, we, we can, if you'd really like, we could do that. <laughs> well, but that's the, the behavior we're trying to change is right. that, you know, if, if it is very expensive, then it becomes unachievable in a lot of areas because a lot of those agencies are actually stranded from a financial standpoint. And technology is not where historically they put their money, tended to put their money into actually the people that are delivering those services, the caseworkers that are sitting on the front line, which makes sense. But it's been a shift that we've been driving in terms of telling them that software can help augment those frontline caseworkers. We can actually help them do their job more efficiently and therefore allow them to deal with cases in a better way than, uh, than they do today. Because the ones that have computers end up having computers that are there primarily for compliance purpose, where people enter a lot of data in, and that's it. They're like information dumps. And at the end of that comes a report that is being sent to an office in Washington, D.C. and reviewed. And it's like, check, we've, uh, we've ticked the box. We've actually provided the data that needed to be provided. And now we can receive our funding for next year. The shift that we're trying to drive is that this data can actually be used every day to figure out how to best help the people that they're facing. Mm. Are you using any AI at all? We are using a fair amount of AI. And this is actually one of the things that uh, we've been pushing uh, in the industry and a lot of people have looked to us for because the area where we're using AI is actually one of the less dangerous ways to use AI, which is to help augment the caseworker. So when a caseworker is starting to enter information in, for example, if they are typing in a name, we start using our AI to analyze whether that name has appeared somewhere else in our system at some other time. And if it has, then bring in all that history directly into the overall set of data entry that the person would do. And so we can reduce the amount of time that it takes for them to fill out a lot of those forms because government is all about forms and workflows. Well, yeah, if you could do that with my hospital and stuff, that'd be great too. I'd appreciate that. I, I get so mad going to a hospital. Once a year, my wife makes me go get all these checkups and all this other stuff because that's what you really should do, I guess. And so she makes me do it. So I got to go from this place to this place to this place to this place to this place. And they're in the same place. I mean, they're in the same system and it's all paper and they're making me fill out the same forms. And I go, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I already filled out once. You got my stuff. I'm not doing it. 
because they ask you the same questions. It's nuts. All right. Sorry. There's my rant for a second. Yeah. <laughs> that, but that's, that, that's true. And, it, you know, where it gets interesting is that it's actually by law in a lot of cases, they're not allowed to share that data. So you go into one agency over here, and that agency is chartered to do that one thing, and you go into this other agency that's doing this other thing. And for example, if you are dealing with a child that is sitting in a house where there's no food, well, because it's a child, that's going to be the child welfare agency. But because there's no food, that's going to be under the uh, different social department. And the caseworker is not allowed to access the data in the other social department because the update of privacy. Hey, Tristan, uh, great point, but let's just take a quick break because I got to pay for this show. C-Suite Radio. Hey, you started as a journalist. You've been part of like six tech startups and you worked as an executive at several international banks, uh, which I talked about in the intro. So how did you end up with government technology? What, what, what was <laughs> just said, oh, this is like, oh, let's get, let's get out of that and go to here. Well, so it it was actually kind of an interesting thing. So as I mentioned earlier, I was in 2016, I was trying to figure out, you know, how to make the world a better place, or I was kind of disillusioned with the impact of technology. And um, one of the largest foundations in the country, the Annie Casey Foundation, focused on child welfare, approached me uh, because they had built some assets to get a more precise count as to the number of children that are in the child welfare system. And they weren't sure what to do with them. And as I looked at the space, I started realizing that uh, it wasn't just a problem in child welfare, but it was child welfare, juvenile justice, adult protective services, homelessness, that all those problems were kind of connected and that they were dealing with a technology that was very similar to the type of technology that I had dealt with in the early 2000s in banking. And the same kind of problem where it's like, okay, it's data and they didn't know how to handle that data. And so at the time, I was kind of convinced that there was no more sector that hadn't been touched by technology that could be transformed through technology. But it turned out that government is one of those laggards uh, in terms of uh, getting the support of technology. And so seeing those components, I was like, you know, I know how to do this. I've done this in banking. I've done this in, uh, in publishing before. And so maybe... I can apply some of those skills to helping solve some real problems here. And so uh, three years later, I'm uh, still scratching the surface on this stuff, but we're starting to make some progress. Very good. You know, aside from the banks and the startups, you also helped create the RSS feed. I thought that, how did that come about? So actually, I I didn't help create the RSS feed. I helped create podcasting. Oh, which RSS, feed, RSS feeds are part of? But how did you how did you how did you yeah. deal with the podcast? I I read that wrong then. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's one of those funny things is that in I think it's like ninety nine. Now I was doing some consulting for Nokia, which was a big telecommunication company at the time. They were were one of the biggest uh, cell phone vendors. A good Finnish company. Yeah, and in at the time they also had set up TV boxes in Europe. And one of those things that I was challenged with was that they were going to introduce this new phone that had a new feature, which was that it would have a camera on it, camera phones, right? Uh, And what they wanted to do was to be able to take the pictures from that phone and throw that onto a television. And at the time, having been involved in publishing, I knew about RSS. And so I went to the folks that were doing stuff around RSS and I said, you know, 
would it be nice if we were to be able to attach all kinds of media, whether it is photographs, which is this thing that I was trying to push, audio files, video files, and move them using RSS? Because at the time, uh, internet bandwidth was very limited. And so being able to kind of store that information directly on your device, uh, you would basically let the stuff run at night, it would download stuff to your local server, and then you could listen or watch it at a later time where you didn't have to have to deal with bandwidth. And from there, a lot of more entrepreneurial people started building up standardized porting and series and attaching them to RSS feeds, and that became the podcasting industry. That's that's fascinating and fabulous. Well, now let's see you do it really well here in the government sector with Casebook, PBC. Tristan Lewis, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being a part of the Hero Factor and all that you're doing to really revolutionize government services because it will make the world better. Thank you so much. At the end of every show, I like to talk about the things that I learned. I always know it's tough to do business anywhere. It's especially tough to do business in government because, man, they're just huge. The biggest employer in the country and the biggest budget in the world. That's what they are. It's tough to move a behemoth like that. I found it inspiring. That was my learning today. Inspiring of people who are still doing the right things for the right reasons. That's what the Hero Factor is all about. And uh, Tristan and his team are really doing it and really overcoming and beating back the champions of no. And we got to do that every day in our business. Hey, let's have you say yes and say yes to listen more on the Hero Factor and make sure you pass it on to your friends. I appreciate so much. This has been Jeffrey Hazlett with the Hero Factor right here on C-Suite Radio. You've been listening to the Hero Factor podcast on C-Suite Radio. Find this and other podcasts like this on C-SuiteRadio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.